Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time. We met right after college. Yeah, in our first jobs as radio producers. We spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did. And we found the right guys and stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers. We make it look easy. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to discuss topics that interest us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, after season one, I'm pretty sure we already have. (laughs) So welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and take a look. Apparently, anxiety in young people is spinning out of control. Yeah. Yeah, so a recent report from the American Psychological Association found that adolescence is no longer a time of exuberance and carefree experimentation. True. True story. Yeah. So today's teens feel more stressed than their parents do. What? Yeah. Apparently, they feel more... I, I get this. I think my daughter does. And Guess what? It's worse for girls than it is for boys. So one study found the number of teenage girls who say they feel worried or fearful jumped by 55 percent. From, Whoa! Yeah, from 2009 to 2014. Well, it stayed kind of the same for boys, but it's up 55 percent for girls. That's that's insane. That's I a lot. I, I I don't quite get it. Like, so we both have well, we live it. We have 12 year old girls. Yeah. So almost 13. I know. I know. Oh my gosh! Like really, and, almost. Yeah. 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 Um, tell me, do you see stress? Yes. Okay. In wh- middle school, like, so we're we're no longer in the elementary school. We're in middle school. Right. And so with that comes a lot of change. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they had lockers in elementary school, but in middle school they have them too. Um, and the moving around a lot and the pressure. She, my, my daughter's very into school, like being, doing well. Mm-hmm. So, um, that and fitting in and all the things that every kid worries about. So, and, yeah. And it ebbs and flows. Like there's some days I'm like, whoa, <laughs> like, you need to meditate or <laughs> like you need to calm down. Yeah. And then other days it's totally. Totally good. Well, also, and their bodies are changing, you know. Yeah. So, uh, Sophie grew six inches last year. What? Yes. So we need to get together. Clearly, I, you haven't. She's taller than you. Yeah. Well, yeah. is that really that hard? Though? No, not, not, not that hard. <laughs> um, so, in seventh grade for Chicago public schools, it's the year where the grades determine whether they're getting into a good high school or not. No pressure. No pressure there. Yep. So the in kids, seventh grade, not eighth grade. It's the seventh grade grades and the seventh grade map tests are what determine if they're getting into a good high school. So there's a lot of pressure there. And then, you know, they're I think they're finally recognizing the different genders. Yeah. You know, they are finally realizing that boys are boys and girls are girls. Yeah. And um no one's really pairing off yet. Uh, have you have you heard of the verb shipping? No. <laughs> when you get into a relationship, it's like Brangelina. Shipping? Yes. Yeah, so Oh my god. So, you know, Sophie has been shipped with someone. I don't know who it is. Um, what? Hannah has been shipped. Is this like a city suburb thing? 
probably. I'm probably going to embarrass myself. People are going to, my friends are going to be like, Tracy, you didn't know you've been in head in the sand. What the heck? I didn't know what it was either, but so they've been shipped. Um, and, the, and so people are labeling them, right? You know, they're saying, you're just like, you know, you and Finn hang out together. So you guys are sin or, oh my <laughs> God. Oh yeah, that that happened before. I've heard that before. Okay. All right. Yeah. yeah. So that's going on. Um I know that there's stress and I did not Yeah, I just figured it was normal, but then I just well we both just read this book. So um I hadn't really noticed the the real stress until uh this new book called Under Pressure: Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. It's written by psychologist Lisa Demore. Do you remember her? Yes, love yeah. her. Yeah, we interviewed her in season 1. She's the New York Times best-selling author of Untangled: Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. And didn't you just She's her? she's wonderful. She I just want to like have a glass of wine with her and sit and kibitz. She's everything that she says is relatable and like I I sat in this parent workshop just recently and I went I went to go I went to go see her and I'm sitting in the audience amongst all these parents and just collectively everyone was taking people around me were taking notes on the program or they'd snicker in certain parts of things she said and that to me when I was snickering at the same time I felt like yes somebody somebody else is doing this is going through the same thing and she said something very very telling to me in the topic, which we could talk about with her later, but um, she said something that changed my perspective on asking at the end of school, at the end of the day. So she said, you know, if kids come home and they're not really talkative with you or give you like one word answers and stuff, how would you feel after spending a day at work where you go to your first meeting for 50 minutes and you don't get to pick what you talk about? You don't get to sit next to anybody you want to sit next to oh and then you get up and then you go to your next meeting that's 50 minutes and you don't get to pick what you're talking about and you don't get to sit and on and on she's like you see where i'm going with this and it put the whole it put the spanish inquisition that i have in my house at the end of the day when they come home and bring their you know unload their backpack and stuff i'm like oh that makes total sense like at the end of the day just buzz off they're brain dead yeah, they're just like, okay, I've had to conform and like do subjects that I don't care about or whatever and sit still and sit next to Johnny who's so annoying or whatever and, and, and deal with it and, and, and manage the day. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to change the way I work on after, sc- <laughs> after school. Did you do it? I did. I just, I, I just, I'm like, okay. I let them chill out a little bit, and it, it it comes out later. I just stopped asking right away when they came home. So decompress. Y- yeah, yeah. Or don't expect him to be like, yes, I loved second period social studies and third period science and but you know, like yeah. There's some days that maybe they weren't into the topic that they were talking about. Sure. Yeah, makes you, sense, right? Yes. But it took her to say that in a room to, for me to go, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. I'm trying to think. I I pick the girls up from school, and I'm always like, "How was your day? How was your day?" But I, you're like, "Da da 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 da." It's true. All right, now because we're because we're we're in radio, and so yeah. we're used to like asking like boom 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 boom. Yeah, we're yeah. All right, well, so hey, um, guess what? We, we got her. I'm so excited. <laughs> we get the benefit of Lisa's wisdom again because she is on the phone. Lisa, how are you? Hi. Good to be back <laughs> with you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book. We we both have it and we read it and it's awesome. 
Well, I, that means the world to me. You know, it's like it's like your baby. You know, it's oh. like somebody admiring your child. Well, oh. It really matters. Yes, and it's totally in our wheelhouse right now. Like, what is happening? Because we both have twelve-year-old girls. Well, there you are. You are this. You are my ideal reader. Yes, and also, Lisa. One one of the lines in your book is that that there's pretty much no cure for seventh grade, and we're right in the middle of seventh grade right we now. We are. Well, I, you know, and I, but I do go on to say though, I have started to feel more hopeful. You know that there are things we can do for sure, and it's, let's let's drill down. You, your book has got so much, and so we're going to sort of um, fire some questions at you. Um, let's start with you talk about stress and anxiety. They're different. Tell us the difference between stress and anxiety. So psychologists like to you know make these very fine grained distinctions. So stress is when you're feeling sort of pressure or tension, and anxiety is fear or dread, and you know so those are our sort of technical terms. In reality, they often get kind of mixed up with each other. Uh-huh. You know? So if you um, have a very, very stressful job with you know more work than really can be done in the time you have available, you're going to start to feel anxious about not getting the work done. Uh-huh. Um, you know, if you live in a situation that is very scary, right? Maybe you live in a neighborhood where there's gunplay. You know, those, that's going to be fear that you feel all the time, but it's going to basically amount to chronic stress. So... We can make distinctions, and it's it's helpful to do so, especially so that we can talk about what's healthy stress and what's healthy anxiety, because they really are, you know, have largely a lot of healthy aspects. But in real life, they often kind of coil around each other. That that whole chapter or um, that whole part of the book talking about healthy stress and healthy anxiety was very helpful to me, actually. And um, I loved your sleepover story because that that has happened in my house. <laughs> About oh, healthy anxiety. Who, like, wants to go to the sleepover but feels too scared to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very common, you know, worry that kids have. So what is healthy stress or healthy anxiety? Well, let's start with healthy stress. So part of why I even wrote this book is that the understanding that psychologists have about stress and anxiety is pretty separated from the understanding the culture has. Our understanding is that stress and anxiety are normal, healthy, and protective, if not positive, functions. Um, and, and whereas the culture seems to feel that they're bad and that we have to try to get rid of them. So, so healthy stress is stress that happens when we're growing. And any time we are working at the edge of our capacities, we will feel stress. Or any time we're doing something that requires us to adapt a lot, we will feel stress. And those can be good things, right? Like getting married is really, really stressful. Um, but it's a good thing. Right. Um, having a baby come into your house is outrageously stressful. <laughs> True story. Because it requires a ton of adaptation. Exactly. But what we find, and this is why psychologists like stress, is that when people operate at the edge of their capacities, they usually grow that the things that stretch us actually do expand what we can do going forward. So, you know, anyone who's had two kids come into their home usually has the experience that the second baby doesn't feel like nearly as stressful as having the first baby, Mm -hmm. even though you now have twice the children. Right. Right, that, that you sort of built up to it. So healthy stress is the kind of stress that builds capacity, builds durability, builds flexibility, and allows us to take on more and more over time. Healthy anxiety is anxiety that alerts us to threats. 
So the way we want to think about anxiety is that it is a primitive and ancient system programmed into us, really from cave days, to alert us to threats. So it might alert us to a threat on the outside. You know, so say, for example, you're driving and someone comes up behind you really fast. There should be, you know, kind of a a spike in anxiety because that is a threat. You do need to pay attention and you probably need to, you know, change lanes or watch that driver. Or it can also alert us to threats on the inside. So, for example, if we're messing around on Facebook when we need to be getting ready for a meeting, (laughs) you know, eventually you'll feel kind of anxious and sort of like, you need to shut this down. And, And so that's anxiety serving its purpose, sort of saying, you know, pay attention, make a change, shift. Anxiety gets out of control when that alarm system isn't working right. So unhealthy anxiety is when the alarm is going off all the time for no reason or when it's blaring over things that are not that big a deal. So, you know, so for instance, like we don't want anyone to be having a panic attack about a quiz. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, anxiety serves a really useful purpose. And most of the time, stress tells us that we're growing and changing for the better. And knowing that actually really changes the experience of being stressed or being anxious. Because right now, when everybody feels like these are all bad and we have to get rid of them, I'm now caring for a generation of kids in my practice who become stressed about being stressed and anxious about being anxious. And that doesn't need to be happening. It compounds. It builds on it. On it. Yeah. You're going to feel stressed and anxious at several points in any given day. That's a done deal. Nothing's broken. Right. And so is it because we're telling them as parents that they shouldn't feel stressed or anxious? I think we are transmitting that message, and I think we believe that message. And I've thought a lot about, like, where did this, where did this idea come from? And right now I'm blaming the wellness industry. Okay. I've decided they're to blame. Okay, good. I feel like there's some money caught up in the idea or selling the idea that you're supposed to feel really good all the time and relaxed mm-hmm. and that anything that, you know, is making you feel otherwise needs to be addressed. Uh, I, I think um, that is a, a gross misunderstanding of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for the most part, being human means that, you know, occasionally you feel really terrific and the rest of the time you're like just dealing. Didn't you talk about in the book um, with the healthy anxiety, like for a quiz, you mentioned the quiz, that it it, it prepares you having healthy anxiety, prepares you to, to kind of do a gut check if you're ready for the test or the quiz. Isn't that what Absolutely. healthy anxiety? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I mean, and the way I talk about it in the book is if your kid comes to you and says, like, oh, I have a quiz tomorrow, I'm super anxious. You know, the first question out of your mouth should be, did you study? Right. Yeah. Right? And if they say no, you say, well, thank goodness you're anxious. That's the right reaction, <laughs> right? And when you start studying, your anxiety will go down. For sure. All right, so in your chapter about girls at home, because you, you do these uh, chapters where girls are at home or uh, girls interact with boys or they interact with culture, but in the girls at home, you say parents today know too much. They know too much. Is it possible for us to know too much? Definitely. Um, we have to really step back and think about what it means that no generation of parents before us has known this much about what's going on with their kids when their kids are not with them. You know, we do have the power, and I'm not saying we should never use it, but we do have the power, thanks to digital technology, to see how they talk to their friends, to locate them physically when they're away from us, 
to see how they conduct themselves over social media, so in that social milieu, and you know, however weird it may be, um, to see what they searched for, to see what they're curious about. And it's a lot to know about our kids. And I think it's very easy as a parent to fall into the assumption that having more information is better. Yeah, I'm guilty. And yeah, and, and I think, you know, we just sort of do that. We feel that way about the news. We feel that way about all sorts of things. We have to question that assumption. And and the way we should think about it is a lot of growing up happens when you're sort of figuring out how to handle yourself and manage on your own. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we should remember is the way we talked in the locker rooms and on the back of the bus would have curled our mother's hair, mm-hmm. and they just never had a way to know about it. Right. We used to pass notes. Do you remember that? Like oh, pass notes. Oh, yeah. Well, do you remember if the teacher intercepted it because it was so inappropriate that it was like a full-blown crisis? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, so there is a distinction, though, between like the note or the back of the bus versus putting something on digital media, right, where it sort of exists forever. Right. And so we do need to help kids not do that. And we do need to say, look, I didn't know you knew all those swears. That's really interesting. Um, I don't need to know, and nobody else needs to know that you know all those swears. Like, don't do it on your phone, you right. know. Um, that, that's an important conversation to have. But I think sometimes, you know, I've, I've watched, I've just seen it in so many different ways. I've watched parents sort of stumble into their kids' technological life and then think they've got this total reprobate on their hands when, in fact, they have, you know, a pretty normal kid who's probably shouldn't put it all up on social media. But so should we not be checking the phones? Should we not be checking their social media? Um, there, I wish there was a one-size-fits-all answer on this. There's definitely not. Um, I think there's some sort of guidelines that are useful. One is, I think, for start for the start of a kid's digital life, there should be a sense of transparency. You know, whenever the moment comes that we hand phones to kids, and usually it's around like 13 or so, if not a little younger, mm-hmm. I think we say, look, you know, I'm reserving the right to check this when I want to. Right. And that, I think, is an important thing to say because it helps kids manage themselves a little better. Right. right? Even if we don't check all that often, at least there's a speed bump there. Yes. Um, then I think it comes down to the kid. And, you know, I've, seen, I've made different recommendations for kids in the same family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, if you have one kid who basically thinks social media is dumb and likes looking at Pinterest, you probably don't have to be spending a lot of time monitoring. True. And if you have another kid who's really impulsive and gets out ahead of themselves and does dumb things and does them online too, they probably need a much shorter digital leash. Makes sense. You mentioned putting slack in the system. What does that mean? Oh, okay. So this, this is sort of... My, I guess the other thing I could call that section is, like, don't be dumb like me, <laughs> I think, <laughs> what I would call it. So, like, I like things busy. Like, I'm someone who does well with a very high level of activity. And when I became a mom, I, I just I just was always sort of kind of figuring out how much we could pull off, you know. Yep. Like, could I give a talk that night? You know, I think my husband might be away, but maybe I'll get a babysitter over. And, you know, oh, I think we can make it to this. You know, we can sign up for soccer because we can do it. And and I just, I would really get us pretty tightly scheduled. And then, you know, something would happen. And, and usually the thing that would happen is like a kid would get sick, right? Yeah. Or a car wouldn't start. Whoops. And because we were, you know, scheduled to the, you know, the teeth, like the whole system would fall apart, right? Like it would just turn into a full-on crisis. And so I, I, I was working... Ages ago, I was co-authoring a textbook in abnormal psychology, and I was writing the chapter on stress. And I started reading this 
phenomenal research that I talk about quite a bit in Under Pressure about the impact of daily hassles, you know, just sort of like small things that don't go right. Uh And these genius researchers were able to determine the daily hassles, when they add up, those are as stressful as what we consider to be like much more significant traumatic stressors, you know. So, so for example, that, you know, the um, measure they always give is, you know, it's, it's horrible to have your spouse die, but a, a huge volume of the stress you experience is that you cannot find the checkbook. You do not know how they kept the bills. You do not know, yeah. you know, oh. the number to call for the, you know, all of these daily hassles accrue. And then, of course, as one of my friends calls it, the bureaucracy of death sets in and trying to manage that. And when you talk to people who are bereaved, those actually amass into an extraordinary form of stress. And so I was reading this research, and I thought, you know what? I am setting us up for daily hassles, mm-hmm. right? When I have us on these tight margins and trying to accomplish so much, anything that doesn't go like clockwork is going to you know, kind of create this cascade of hassles. Right. And so I, I started underscheduling us. Well, that's going to be hard for Ann and I. We're former radio producers. My husband's constantly saying, you book us every five minutes. Like, you you have us dialed in every five to ten minutes because that's in radio. That was our blocks in the morning yeah. drive and stuff. So it is, it, is a, it is a stressor when you're running from one thing to another. And you've got no margin. And so that's where, you know, those moments where we just say, like, I can do this, but should I, should I do it? Mm-hmm. Or could I... Would, would I want the slack in the system? And and I have always found that when I elect to put slack in the system, either it turns out I totally needed the slack or actually I needed the break that the slack gave me. The other thing, Lisa, is when I do put slack in the system, I have two kids who are like, well, what are we doing now? I mean, they, they expect to be busy all the time, so much so that they don't even know what to do with themselves when they're not programmed. Yeah. Be bored, yeah. kids. And, and boredom is good, right? <laughs> yeah. Boredom is good. Actually, um, there was a fabulous op-ed last weekend. I think it was Pamela Paul who wrote it about the benefits of boredom for children. It was in the New York Times. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, because then they get creative. That, that's what she said. You know, into the boredom comes, you know, things start happening. Okay, so in the chapter about girls among girls, you know, we talked about social media. Um, how has social media rather than just the parents monitoring it, but how has social media affected the relationships our girls have and their amount of sleep? So those are exactly the two things we got to think about. So when we look at the data on social media, what we see is it tends to just amplify whatever's already going on. So if kids have, you know, nice, supportive, happy relationships, usually that is mirrored on their social media, that they tend to get along pretty well in that the social media activity kind of enriches and deepens those relationships. And if they are, you know, kids who are running into a lot of friction or causing a lot of friction, that also tends to be mirrored on social media. So it's not, like, clearly a good or a bad. But what I would say is even being connected to one's friends, as much as kids love it and want it, it comes with a degree of stress. It just means that they're not getting some downtime, some breathing room, some sort of, you know, being alone with themselves time. So there's that factor of just the, the constant connectedness, I think, can be exhausting kids to absorb. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But then if you set that to the side, the much bigger, I would say, a much more urgent issue is around the fact that social media is basically like the mortal enemy of sleep, right? I mean, it just it really does a doozy on kids' sleep patterns. 
And, you know, if you, if you need a really simple explanation, which I'm not usually inclined to simple explanations, but if you wanted one for why we have such stressed and anxious kids, sleep deprivation would be very high on the list I would offer you. Yep. Um, they are supposed to, as high schoolers, they need nine hours of sleep. As middle schoolers, they need 10 hours. And in elementary school, they need about 11. Ugh. Wow. Yeah. No, that is not happening in, in people's houses. No, hardly ever. And we are so, it's so easy to study sleep. All, you know, all we have to do is like bring you into a lab, give you a great night's sleep, give you a bunch of measures, bring you back into the lab, keep you up all night, give you a bunch of measures. It, sleep is the glue that holds human beings together. Yes. Having a good night's sleep makes everything better. Having a bad night's sleep makes everything worse. So a lot of times when kids are not getting enough sleep, it's because they're still online or they're upset about what they saw online or being online made it hard for them to fall asleep because of the light they were looking at. I mean, it just, it just plays such a factor in so many ways. Same for adults. Think about it. I, I've had my phone in my bed when after the kids are asleep and I'll read something, a news article or a blog or something, and then it, it, and then it just revs me up. Yep, and then exactly. I think about it, and then I'm not thinking about sleeping. I'm thinking about that thing in the dark with my eyes closed, but I'm still awake. <laughs> it's still going, right? And think yeah. About, like, remember how hypercharged everything social was for you when you were a teenager? So can you imagine, you know, here it is, like, 1030, you're trying to, like, you know, you know, kind of cycle down for the day. And then you just look on Insta, and you discover that three girls who you thought were really good friends with you went to the mall, took pictures of it, and put it up, but didn't didn't include you. Mm -hmm. You know, for an eighth grader, that's devastating. Yeah. That that and, brings me to something that you said at the parent workshop and is also in, in Under Pressure, your new book. When you said this, I sat in the audience as a mom of two kids and I felt a sense of relief because in my house, this is applicable. You said that research suggests that one or two friends is the best at keeping stress and drama away. And I feel like in the parent circles, everyone's like, oh, Johnny has all these friends or all 10 of them are going out or all these. There's this text thread of 15 people and all this stuff. And then then I'm like, well, my, my daughter doesn't have a text thread of 15 people or whatever. And when you said that at the parent workshop that night, I was like, yes, <laughs> because my, my daughter has friends. She she doesn't hang out in a gaggle of 15 kids. She is a couple hard, hardcore, like very close, just a small group. And that was very refreshing to me. I'm so glad. You know, I think everybody talks about popularity like it's this like great thing. Um, it's pretty stressful for kids to be popular. Um, having a broad social network is a lot of work. It's a lot of kids to stay connected to. It's a lot of kids to keep happy. It's a lot of loyalties to navigate. Having a smaller group that's more predictable and reliable and less drama, even though it doesn't feel cool, usually makes kids' social lives a little, little less demanding of them. I just took solace in hearing that, you know what, like there's always this propensity to be like popular and that you have all these people and but there's repercussions to it or there could be drawbacks to it. So I I was like, cool, one or two friends. Because honestly, there's a, a core, I have lots of friends too, but there's a core group of people that I am like really tight with and it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, Lisa, in your chapter about girls at school, you explain the vast differences between girls and boys, and you suggest moving from grind to tactician. And this one really hit me because I have a seventh grader who will work nonstop perfecting her assignments. She will, if if she has four hours, she will take four hours. Even if the assignment is done, she will rework it. So tell, tell us about that strategy. This is a great one. Yeah, grind versus tactician. So this is one of those things where we have stood by and let this happen. You know, girls can be very, very perfectionistic. And what you're describing is not that unusual. And teachers will, you know, if you talk about this with a group of teachers, like, you know, the, the girls will approach their work this way. They know exactly what you're talking about. They recognize it instantly. The mistake we've made as adults, and, you know, I, I think this is a well-meaning mistake, is that we thought, like, look at how conscientious she is. Look at how diligent she is. This is wonderful. You know, why can't her brother be more like that? Um The problem is girls come to rely on very inefficient strategies, and they come to only trust their, you know, kind of intellectual elbow grease. You know, they don't trust their smarts. And girls, lots of them are plenty smart and could probably do just as well and learn everything they needed to doing a percentage of the effort, you know, that they're putting in. So what we need to do, and I actually feel like we need to do it starting in middle school at the latest, is you know, basically disrupt how girls do school. You know, so with your daughter who's spending that kind of time, I think we want to start to say, look, you've shown us you've got a fantastic work ethic. You're going to need it from time to time. Your next job is to become tactical, to figure out, you know, how to sort of use economy of time, you know, to figure out how how much do you need to do, what can you get done in the time you have available, and then go and have a good time, you know, or go relax or rest. It's a, it's a funny shift to make with girls, but the reason we want to do it and the reason we want to do it during middle school is that if girls come to rely on this sort of over-the-top strategy for doing their work, they will not back away from that in high school, right? Because it works for them. It yes. does deliver amazing grades. Yes. So if they, if they really lock it in the middle school and then they become ninth graders, they're not about to change strategies because, my gosh, now it counts. And so... What I see all the time, and I feel like I'm on a mission to do something about this, is that by junior year, which is so hard, and especially you know if girls are taking multiple APs, which is not unusual, their strategies from middle school are crushing them. Right. And so we have to push them in middle school and certainly ninth grade to to really be tactical in their approach to work. I have a boy and a girl, a son and a daughter, and... In the book, it's so funny, like, my son and most boys will do the bare minute, like, they're like, it's done. They're like, if they have a cursive worksheet or, I don't know, some math sheet, they are done faster than I could have gotten the pencil out of the drawer to put it on the table for him to do it. Whereas my daughter would be like setting up, setting up the, you know, her space and doing it and taking her time and whatever and is very methodical about it and very neat. Like I can actually read the numbers on the page. <laughs> Whereas like I'm looking at the math on my son's page and I'm like, you know, that sloppiness, you're actually going to get it wrong because you can't even line up the rows, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but it's so true. Like not to cast a, like a broad stroke, but no, it, is, it holds up pretty well, and the data support it all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're definitely highly conscientious boys, but the data 
in broad strokes, support what you're describing. Yes. And in a way, that's a blessing for them, right? For boys? I think it... Yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean, I think there's a few things that come out of it. One is, you know, the smart ones, and there's lots of smart ones, figure out what you're describing, how to get the 89.5, right? The lowest grade that will round up to an A, you know? uh And then... They learn what they need to, and they're getting the same grades as their hard-driving sisters, but they're playing a ton more Fortnite, you know, or whatever. Exactly. Um, they're not nearly so stressed. They're sleeping more. They're having more fun. The other thing, <laughs> How'd you know? This, I know. No, it's because it's easy. That's very easy right now to make that, <laughs> that yeah. assumption. Um, the other thing is I think it helps boys build confidence, right, that they have the sense of how much talent do I have, and then how much do I have to work above that talent, they're calculating their talent all the time, and they're testing their talent all the time. Girls work with the assumption they've got no talent, they've got only elbow grease, and they can really bring the elbow grease. That's exactly and, it. Yeah. And so we need to also say to girls, well, see how far you can get on what you already know, and then work up to the point that you need to. And the way I have been militant about this, both in my own home and then in the girls I care for um, in my practice, is to say to them, before you start studying, take a sample test. Mm -hmm. See what you already picked up in class. See what you already remember from the homework. And then do not study that again. And then just focus. So it's not about working or not working. It's about focusing the work. Yes. Figuring out what you don't know so you can know it. Know it, and not, but I will tell you, the amount of time girls spend reviewing material they already know is horrifying, and I honestly think it's a self-soothing mechanism, that they're worried about school, and then they feel better if they just go over and over and over things, yeah. that they basically have a grasp on, which really is not a way to survive school. Isn't it, isn't the phrase like, work hard, no, don't work hard, work smarter, or what, what's, yes. there's some? Yes, yes, work Work, work smarter, harder, not, not smarter. Or yeah. Smarter, not harder, yeah. right? Yeah. That's totally, that's yeah. a, That's an approach. Um, and we need to push girls on that because the boys are being pretty smart about it. Yes, they are. <laughs> a lot earlier, too. Um, there's a chapter on girls in culture because um, the book is broken down basically in, in facets, if you will. What do you mean by, um, well, I think I know, but raised to please? And I think that kind of blends in with the whole study habits and everything else, raised to please. And how we go from firefighter, you mentioned firefighters and arsonists. And also you mentioned yeah. your disappointed face, which I think yeah. I have. <laughs> I think I think you get one upon receiving a child. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you make that face, the mom face. Um, we ask girls to be nice. We expect that they will be nice. We expect that they're going to be agreeable, they're, that they're going to do what we ask. Um, and we expect that they're going to want to or at least pretend that they want to. Um, and the, the way... The way I always think about this is, you know, how parents complain about their daughter's eye rolling. You know, like, oh, she rolls her eyes. It's so rude. It's so disrespectful. You know, and sometimes girls are rolling their eyes as a way to kind of be openly disrespectful. But often it's the kind of thing where the parents will say, no, 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 you can't go out till you empty the dishwasher. And then the girl will roll her eyes and then go empty the dishwasher. And the parent is still annoyed that she rolled her eyes. And I think... Well, that's really interesting because if you had said to your son, you need to unload the dishwasher, and he rolled his eyes or, like, huffed and then did it, you'd be like, win, I won. <laughs> like, exactly. Totally it. And so I think if we examine those moments, we have to realize that we do have these different rules for girls where we basically are saying, not only do I want you to do what I'm saying, I want you to pretend like you like it for my benefit and be agreeable, be sweet about it. Right. And 
And that, like, we have to really think about that. And which is not to say I'm in the business of, like, let's see how rude girls can be. But I am in the business of making sure that we are not biased in our reaction to our kids or in the business of saying, look, I get it. You didn't want to unload the dishwasher. Thanks for doing it anyway. And just, I think you know this, but you can't roll your eyes like that at anybody outside this house. You know, and girls will be like, I know. And then they'll roll their eyes. But, like, (laughs) that's the key point, right? So I think we have to be mindful of this. Um, And then I also think the sort of, you know, switching from an, uh, you know, a firefighter to an arsonist, I think in theory, we're like, I want my daughter to be empowered. I want her to stick up for herself. I want her to, you know, never do anything she doesn't want to do, right? I mean, we say those things all the time. And then, you know, like you get an answer, you know, voicemail on your answering machine where it's like a play date for your, you know, third grader. And it's it's a kid she doesn't really want to go on a play date with. And, you know, you're, you're like, oh, come on. You know, she's not that bad. You know, what if we have her over here? That Wouldn't that make it better? You know, that we, we want them to be empowered and opinioned unless they're not in agreement with what we want them to do. Right. So they have to be in line with us. But Yeah. Yeah. So along those lines, in terms of teaching girls to say no to things, um, you mentioned uh, full disclosure is not required. Talk about that because I think, you know, we do tell kids, or particularly I've got girls, so I tell them to be honest, to be forthright, um, and and yet, there's such a thing as too much honesty, right? Yeah, no, it's funny. I I feel like this is where the idea of being authentic has been maybe misconstrued. Um, I think that girls have been given the impression, or they've gotten the impression, that what they think and feel has to be reflected in what they do. And if there's some... If there's a separation, if they're thinking and feeling one thing but doing something else, um, that maybe that means they're being like two-faced or fake, you know, as they would say. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a lot. It's it's unnecessary pressure to assume that one has to be transparent, right? So a way to think about it is adults aren't transparent, right? We don't tell everybody everything that's on our mind, mm-hmm. and. You know, if somebody invites us to a dinner party that we can't stand, we don't say, oh, no, no, here's why I don't like you. (laughs) I don't enjoy your company at all, right? We say, oh, you know, I'm busy. Thanks so much for the invitation, right? We do that all the time. And you put a period. Yeah, you put a period at the end of the sentence and you don't elaborate. You just, you know. Yeah. But you've made a decision. And so the way I talk about it in the book is that everybody gets to have a front stage and a backstage. Right, the front stage is what we decide to show the outside world, and we're in charge of what's on the front stage. And the backstage is the rest of the story. It's our own private thoughts and feelings, or it's what we share you know, with the people closest to us, or it's how we let our hair down at home. But the girls are allowed to have a curtain between the two. And that doesn't mean they're being fake or inauthentic. I mean, another really good example is, you know, like you're at work and you get on the elevator with like someone you really don't like. You don't like give them the stink eye the whole time. Like you're like, hey, how was your weekend? You know, I mean, you do that sort of yeah. front stage politeness, which is quite removed from how you really think and feel. And and that's not unusual. It's in fact how adults navigate the world. It's socialization. It's learning. Yeah. Yeah. That happens all the time the when the kids are texting each other. Hey, can you come over? And they, I think in the book, the one example you gave was that she might have just wanted to stay home and didn't yeah. want to have to 
because the friend might think, well, that's stupid. Why would you want to stay home? You don't have to explain yourself. It's just, just be like, you know what? I can't. Thank you so much. Maybe next, maybe Thank tomorrow. You, you know, yeah, I really appreciate the invitation. Can't come tonight. You know, that you don't owe them a full accounting. Um, in the book also, because we have to wrap it up a little bit, but, um, I loved the chapter that talked about being a bulldozer, a doormat, and a doormat with spikes. Yeah. Can can you give an example of a bulldozer, doormat, and doormat with spikes? Sure. So this is in the chapter about Girls Among Girls, and it's in a section around helping girls do healthy conflict. So the reality is girls are going to have conflict. I mean, the idea that they're going to get along with everybody all the time makes no sense at all. Yeah. But what we do need to do is help them to have conflict that's that's a healthy form. So without adults helping them, which is mostly where we're at right now, they, and also adults, tend to default to unhealthy forms of conflict. So those are the ones you just described. So a bulldozer is somebody who just runs other people over, just does what they want, gets their way. A doormat is somebody who just allows themselves to be run over. And then I, I really do think this is the far and away most common form of conflict is the doormat with spikes, right? Which is the person who looks like they've taken it, but they actually aren't getting the person, you know, the the person they're mad at back another way, right? So they're either being passive aggressive. I was going to say passive aggressive. <laughs> yeah, passive aggressive behavior. You know, it's like using guilt as a weapon or playing the part of the victim or, you know, involving third parties in what should really be a two-person dispute. Um, so, you know, our job is to give kids an understanding of the unhealthy forms of conflict, which do make immediate sense to them, like they recognize it instantly. And then to say, look, if you're going to have conflict, you want to do it as a pillar. You want to do it as somebody who stands up for themselves while being respectful of everybody else. Or, and this is an important or, or you're allowed to do, and this is the analogy I use, emotional Aikido, which is in in the form of martial arts, Aikido, If somebody comes at you, the first thing you do is you actually just step out of the way. You just don't engage. And then you see what happens after that. You know, and that might be enough to sort of end it or knock them Uh off balance. And and I think, again, especially for girls, you know, in the name of empowerment, we're like, oh, she said that to you, you need to say something to her. Or she left you out of the party, you need to ask why. You know, that we're really like, get in there, like, find out what the story is. But again, like, no functioning adult is engaging every annoyance, you know, every social slight. Yes. We are always just sort of like, I'm not even dealing with that, right? We're always making decisions. And so I think we need to clarify, you know, especially for our daughters, that to make a tactical decision to not respond to something is not the same as being a doormat. It's deciding it's not worth your time Mm -hmm. or you don't expect that talking with a person is going to make it better or you don't care that much about the relationship to even put energy into trying to sort it out. In the book, I think you use an example where there's some teammates and one girl is not invited to a party and sees that there was a party and she could choose to ask why she wasn't invited or she can choose oh, yeah, to not care because she doesn't even yeah. care about that kid. And and that's viable or that's real. You can say, does it really matter to you? And let your kid say, not really. Not really. And I, it's, there's this really smart um, social worker named Phyllis Flagel who's at, in the D.C. area. And I interviewed her for a piece on um, conflict. And she said the smartest thing. She's like, usually what they need help with is figuring out how to maintain a polite distance from each other, especially if it's a relationship that used to be closer. 
But adults should not work with the assumption that kids are trying to resolve things all the time and make it make it better. And and I just I thought that was so right on. And and they also kids know each other well, and they they might say, you know what, I can pillar all day long with this girl. She's not going to pillar back. You know, I, I could put all of this energy into trying to have a healthy conflict with her. It's going nowhere. Right. And we have to really support that understanding. Right. Well, thank you so much, Lisa Damore, author of Under Pressure, uh, Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls, also author of Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. Under Pressure is out this week, so we we were so excited to get you uh, hot off the presses. (laughs) Go out and get the book. Yeah, it it should be a Bible. Um, At the parent workshop that I saw you, my I went to go take a seat in the audience, and I looked down, and it's my neighbor. And I, I'm like, I like Jen. What do you do? <laughs> what are you doing here? She's like, I love this book. I go through it all the time. I have it by my bed. So like, it's you. You impact a lot of a lot of parents. So thank you so much for all the work you do and spelling it out for us. Well, I appreciate it. I really am glad I got to be with you guys today. All right. Good luck with the book tour. And um, let us know. Um, we'll, well, we'll just probably call you again because <laughs> we need help. Stay in, so. touch. Stay in touch. Thank you so right, much, Lisa. Care. Thanks, Lisa. Sure, you bet. Bye-bye. So uh, apparently we need to look at stress and anxiety in our girls, right? Yep. Figure out how to help them cope with conflict, how to help them cope with school. Healthy anxiety, healthy stress. Yeah. So stress isn't necessarily a bad thing. And we've been, I, I think I've been telling my kids not to be stressed, but maybe I should look at it again. Um, yeah, there's a negative connotation to it. Yeah. Remember when we talked about getting comfortable being uncomfortable? Yeah. It's it's that. It's kind of like that, yeah. Yeah, uh, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. It helps you grow. And, and the, ultimately, our job is to grow, right? Exactly. So, so um, do you think you're capable of doing that? Do you think you're capable of letting stress be? Um, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, you're pointing at me when we're talking about overscheduled kids. <laughs> Um, right, Seriously. Well, well, let's try. Put some slack in the system, man. I know. I know. That was it. Yes. Okay. Well, such a good book. So much to learn. Um, you know, we'd love to hear how our listeners handle stress and anxiety. Um, do you have any stories to share? Uh, we, if so, we'd love to hear from you. You can check us out on our Facebook page. Give us a call at 331-704-0046. Or email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Plus podcast. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and take a look.